not a light bulb over their head, but in their countenance when there's an aha moment. And as I think about the, what is it that I've seen elicit that aha moment more frequently than many others? It is, it is the realization that comes, uh, well, it's the realization that comes from the truth expressed in, um, in a text that might be common to you. It's not the text for today, but uh, 1 Corinthians 10, verses thir- verse 13 no temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. For those of you who've been a Christian for a long time, um, maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you realize I'm not alone. But there have been so many people that I know that I've encountered where that's a surprising truth. They didn't know that was true. Maybe it was the temptation, it was a particular area of sin, that they thought, I must be the only one. Maybe it's, um, it's a, a kind of fear or an embarrassment. I'm still wetting the bed at 15. Yeah, you're not alone. <laughs> it's common. From temptation to sin, to our strange bodies, to our fears, we're not alone. It's common, whatever it is. And that's why I think I love the Psalms so much. How comforting it is not only to hear that truth disembodied, but when you sit down with a friend or maybe a new acquaintance and you find out, really, you've had that same experience? You? And that's what the Psalms often do for us. They're like a a close companion a friend who you can sit down with and you, you not only can hear them say, oh, you're not alone, but you are given a glimpse into the very heart of that friend in the moment of need. So with that in mind, I'd encourage you, if you have a Bible handy, to turn to Psalm 63. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand if, it's, if that's something that you can do. And as we read, I want you to think of this as a friend. We hear the voice of a companion. And you may hear in this voice an echo of your own heart at times, maybe in the past, maybe now, and certainly with enough years in the future. So please stand as we read Psalm 63 together. Hear the beautiful, the powerful, the life-changing and shaping words of the triune God of the Bible. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and your glory. And because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Because you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, 
I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be portions for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this, this morning, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have the privilege uh, that Steve oftentimes doesn't have because I don't preach regularly. He t- takes us big chunk of scripture, a book oftentimes, and just preaches through it. And whatever's there, he's got to preach on. And I don't, I'm not limited in that way. I get to preach on what I want to preach on. And I like the Psalms, and I like the Psalms in particular, that tell us explicitly the context in which they were written. I love to picture that. And this is one of those Psalms. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. Now, for those of you who have some familiarity with the Bible and the history of God's people, and the history of David, and the whole thing with David and Goliath, and then his life that flowed, flowed on after that, you know that there are two times when David found himself in the desert. Early in his life, before he was king, he was being chased by Saul, and Saul had no good reason to be chasing him. That was early in his life. That was the first time he found himself wandering in a desert. Later in his life, he was running from another man. He was running from his own son, Absalom. Which one was it? The context actually makes a difference. And when you consider the cry of his heart that we've just read, the context, one, if it's early in his life, the picture is different. If it's later in his life, the picture is different. Which one is it? Well, here's the last phrase of this psalm, and I think the, the answer is clear. He says this at the, at, the end of this at the end of this song, but the king shall rejoice in God. The king. Okay, he's talking about the king. The king shall rejoice in God. Now, if it was early in his life, the king was Saul. If it's later in his life, he's the king. The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. That makes no sense if that's Saul. It makes sense if it's David. And so I think we can, we can clearly put the context later in his life when he's running from his son. So how did he end up in this position, in the desert again, running for his life, being threatened by his son? At the time that he wrote this, he's probably in his early 60s. So I don't know if you've been picturing him like when he was a child or a teenager or a a 20-year-old. He's in his early to mid-60s at this point. This is a little over a decade, so a little over 10 years after the whole incident with Bathsheba. So he's already written Psalm 51. He's written Psalm 130. He's had the whole Bathsheba experience and the forgiveness that flowed from that. And in that period of time, from when he experienced the forgiveness uh, and the restoration, um, as well as the drama of, the, of the, the results of that massive sin in his life, a decade unfolds and he finds himself here in the wilderness. 
it's clear that he's been either an absent father or he's been at least a distracted one. So distracted that he didn't know that his son Amnon had fallen into lust with one of his half-sisters. And yes, this does, if you're not familiar with the story, it unfolds like a, an unbelievable soap opera. He's so, Amnon is so overcome with lust for his half-sister that when his, his cousin and good friend, Jonadab, comes in to, to visit him, he sees how forlorn he is and how down he is and his countenance is uh, dark. And he said, what's going on? And so Amnon, you can tell how messed up this family is, that Amnon feels open enough to be able to share that he's lusting after his half-sister. And so Jonadab and Amnon come up with this plot to ensnare his sister so that Amnon can get what he wants. Amnon ends up seducing her and raping her and then hating her. And Absalom, who is Tamar, that's the, that's the sister, Tamar's full brother. So we've got Amnon, the half-brother, rapes his half-sister. Absalom, his sister Tamar, is his full sister. He is furious when he finds this out as you would think he should be. But his anger grows when his dad, David, does nothing in response. Unbelievable. So Absalom bides his time, and after a couple of years of simmering anger, he puts together his own little plot and ends up killing his half-brother, at which point he flees and he runs. Eventually, David invites him back after a couple of years of um, self-appointed ejection from the community. And so now, David and his son Absalom are in this same city, but they, they never meet. It takes a long time for them to meet. And so there's this distance. Like, it's just one bad familial decision after another, as well as bad decisions as a king. What should David have done? To Amnon, justice should have been meted out. Absalom saw that he didn't do his job, and so he did the job for his father. Well, this coldness only turns Absalom's anger into hatred, and Absalom plots a successful coup to overcome his father. And so David is now in the wilderness because of all of this drama, much of it having to do with David's sins of omission. The things he should have done that he didn't. He should have been a better father. He should have been a better king. He should have been present. He should have acted. But this unbelievably messy and disastrous and hopeless context is exactly where we find David now. Maybe in a cave. Maybe in the same cave that he was in 35 years earlier running from Saul. Certainly an unwelcome but, an unf- but a familiar setting for David. Okay, so there's lots of ways that we can unpack this text, Psalm 63. But what I'd like to do today is I want to look at the verbs. The verbs are action words. So many times we think, okay, tell me what to do. I'm in this situation. I want to know, what, what do I need to do next? Well, that's, that's a call for give me the verbs. I need the verbs. I want the actions to take. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the, the various verbs in this short psalm 
And there's three kinds of verbs that we're going to pay attention to, and they're, they're situated nicely. The first verbs are what he's doing in the first verse or so. Then in a little section that comes after that, there's some past tense verbs. He's looking back. And then there's this forward-looking section where he's talking about he, what he will do. So we're going to look at what he's doing, what he did, and what he will do. Those are the verbs we're going to look at. And we're going to start at the beginning, which is a good place to start. Verse 1, take a look back at the text if you have it open. Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Look for the verbs, the actions. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So in the opening words of this song, we hear that David is doing three things as he pens this psalm. There are three verbs. He is seeking, he is thirsting, he is fainting, or some of your texts have longing. And these verbs tell us something about two things. They tell us about the man and how he's feeling, and they tell us about his actual situation. Because we only seek when we've, when we've lost something, You don't seek something that isn't lost. You seek something that's lost. You only thirst when you're actually bereft of water. You have no water. You only faint or long for something when you're feeling the deep lack of that thing. So we see here a man who has good reason to feel these powerful emotions. The physical context is a desert, a wilderness that he was forced to occupy But look at how beautiful this is, how poetic this is. He's in a desert, and that's exactly how he feels. This desert reflects his inner landscape. The thirst that he not only has on his tongue, but in his heart. The longing that he has, not only for home, but for restoration. He's been pushed from a throne with all of its pleasures and privileges, into hiding in a desert wilderness with plenty of appropriate guilt resting on his shoulders. Lots of good reasons to feel hopeless. Lots of good reasons to feel dispossessed, disconnected, depressed. It's important to note, though, that while he was in the clefts and the crags of the wilderness, he was hiding He was hiding, but he was hiding from his son. He was not hiding from God. He was hiding from an enemy, but he was earnestly seeking God, seeking after God like one who, he says, is desperate for water. I know that many of you here today, in those moments of your own desperation, when you feel disconnected, when you feel discouraged, when you feel depressed, you've found yourself turning to lots of things to satisfy, to fill the hole. Anything to distract you. Sex, alcohol, games, video games, work, work, exercise. Even the sense of control that can come from things like anger. At least I can have control in that moment, in the uncontrolled situation I find myself in. Anything to try to just numb the pain. And David was guilty of this at times. We see that idolatry in his life. And this should bring you hope. This should bring you hope. 
that we see this in David's life. Because the same David, so weak at times, also proves to us that the God who we love in common with him did not reject him in his weakness, in his sin. In this moment, the object of David's thirst was for God. David, in a real sense, deserved what he got. This was not the first desert experience where he was being chased unjustly. Like a growing storm, he had sowed through many sins of his own omission the great whirlwind in which he found himself now languishing. A lost kingdom, a reprobate son, little hope of regaining the one without the loss of the other. It would make sense if he felt these kinds of emotions, and maybe you felt these before. Regret. I deserve this. Regret. Oh, I should have done so much differently. Maybe if I'd only... Maybe if I'd only... Guilt. Failure as a man of God. Failure as a king that led not only to his own loss of power, but the loss of those in his kingdom, those who he was supposed to protect, now in the hands of a tyrant. Feeling the bitter agony of love for Absalom as his son, but hatred of him as an enemy. Torn in two from the inside out. And the shame of an absolutely public disgrace. And so in the midst of this, he thirsts for God. And this thirst is both good and bad. It was bad because it pointed to the distance that he had created between himself and the God whom he loved. But it was good in that this thirst revealed that the very thing that his heart truly desired was closeness to God. So we see in the first three verbs how David was feeling, what he was doing. In the next two verses, we see how he now responds to the reality of his situation. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Look, at, look for the verbs. There's two of them. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. What did he do? What steps did he take? He said, I have seen and I have beheld. He looked. This is past tense, though. He's talking about what he has done. Where did he look? Where did he go in that moment? Where do you go in that moment? Just numb me up. No. He looked back to the sanctuary. What happened in the sanctuary? What was the sanctuary? Think for a moment. Sanctuary. Well, it was at least three things. The sanctuary was the place of God's presence. In the midst of this desert experience of his own making to a great extent, he looks back to the place of God's presence. The sanctuary was also the location of the congregation and worship. He doesn't isolate himself. In his mind, he's isolated, not out of a choice of his own, 
But he doesn't isolate himself in his heart. He thinks back to the very place in which God's people congregated and met together for worship. The sanctuary was also the place of safety. The place you could run in order to be rescued from the avenger of blood. If you had, were accused of committing a, a murder, you could run to the altar and you could find, if you could grab a hold of it, you could find rescue. So he thinks back to the sanctuary where at least three things he, he's got in his head. It is the place of God's presence. It is the place of con- the congregation and of worship. And it is the place of rescue. So often we run away from God when we find ourselves in our wilderness. In pain, we avoid and we flee from the very source of our hope. We often also run away from those people who we know will speak the uncomfortable and prophetic words that we need to hear. Those who will act as the emissary of God, telling us uncomfortable truths. We remember Hosea 6, and you know, I don't remember Hosea 6. Where's Hosea? It's in the Bible. Um, toward the end of the Old Testament. But in Hosea 6, there's a passage that I'm going to break up a little bit. It just says this. It says, it's talking about God, and it says, he has torn us. He has struck us. Who's he? God. He has torn us. He has struck us. Does that sound like somebody you want to hang out with? Somebody in whose presence you want to spend a lot of time? And we do in our heads, or in, maybe more so in our hearts, what is very common. We take truths, and we cut out half of them, and we, we remember the, inconvenient, the parts that are convenient to our, the narrative that we're constructing. He's torn us. Why would I want to be with him? He's struck me. Why would I go back to him? I mean, I remember, it's God who sends the rain on both the just and the unjust. And so we crouch as if God is an abusive husband. He moves and we flinch and we turn away in fear. But David knows that though God is involved in his pain, that God is in fact the only place in which his soul can find the rest and satisfaction that his pain is calling out for. Often our hearts... And the devil, they tell us those partial truths, those whispered, ironic lies. Yes, you good Calvinist. God is is sovereign over all. Everything, including your pain, and therefore he is the devil and not a good father. Run. Flee. Get away from him. You want nothing to do with him. He's only a source of pain. But listen to Hosea 6 in context. This is the, the prophet Hosea calling out to the people. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, that he might bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. After the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Do you hear that? After two days, after three, he will raise us up. Come on. Do you hear the resurrection there? A beautiful little foreshadowing. If there was anyone who had reason to complain at the hard mercies of God, it was Jesus. Who hung guiltless but shamefully naked on the cross. And yet the promise given to the son and the hope that he looked forward to was not a promise of perpetual pain. And I know some of you feel like, will this ever end? Is this the promise I get? This life, with all of its pain and disappointments, That isn't the promise. 
It was not a promise of perpetual pain, but of perpetual joy. Joy that could only be found on the other side of the cross. You cannot have resurrection without death. And the purpose of our resurrection, according to Hosea, hear the last verse again of Isaiah 6. He will raise us up that we might live before him. That is the purpose of our resurrection, of our life, the life given to us in Jesus. And so in his earnest seeking, David returns like a homing pigeon. He heads right back home to the sanctuary of God. So what did he see? When he, he looked. Those are the verbs. He looked. He, he thought back to his experience in the sanctuary, and he saw three things. He beheld God's power and his glory. Let's read this, verses 2 and 3. I've seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. In that moment, he reflects on the three things that he can recall experiencing when he worshipped God in God's congregated sanctuary. God's power, God's glory, and God's love. God's power, God's glory, and God's love. Why would he notice and remember those three things? Well, because that's what we encounter when we experience God in worship. We should expect that. You come to worship, you you should expect to experience God's power, his glory, and his love. You should expect to hear it. You should expect to sense it. You should expect to go away knowing that those are at least three things that you cannot escape from if you encounter God. These three things bear particular significance in the midst of a trial. Having seen God's power in worship, he knew God could hear and God could act. God is powerful. Having seen God's glory in worship, he knew that God will always do what is good, that his ways are not trivial. God is not capricious. He's not frivolous in his dealings with your hearts and your lives. He's not a cat batting you around like a mouse. There is too much weight and significance to God for him to live like that. Glory literally means weight. He saw God's power. He saw God's weight. He knew God could hear him. He was not deaf. He knew God could act in his sovereignty. And he knew God was going to do what was right and was not going to treat him like a plaything. And David also saw and remembered God's love. He had experienced the fact that God's love is indeed better than life itself. It is better than life because it is life. Life apart from communion with God is only a shadowy life. Barely a life. A zombie life. A walking death. In the physical and spiritual wilderness that David was able to David was able to remember these things because he had encountered God in his dwelling place before. This is really important. Some of you are struggling so consistently, but in part, it's because you're not doing, you're not um, 
experiencing, participating in, doing those things that prepare you to be able to respond like David. David was able to respond by writing this beautiful psalm because he had spent time in the sanctuary. He had encountered God. He had congregated with God's people. He had been confronted time and time again in the liturgy of his life with God's power and his glory and his love. And so in that moment when things went fuzzy and dark and despair clouded over his heart, it wasn't dark enough to shut out the sun of the truth that he'd experienced week after week after week after week. If you struggle to respond to trials, it's likely that Worship is not a priority for you. And it's not the delight that it needs to be. The delight it needs to be. And so here we go. Dave will talk about God is most glorified by us when we are most satisfied in him. God is not calling you like a boss to just do the work that you've been called to do so you get your paycheck. He calls us to delight in him. To delight in what we're experiencing here. All these people who call upon the name of God, redeemed, set apart, rescued, being changed and transformed, delighting in that, hearing God's promises again and again and again. So he acknowledged his situation. With vivid words. He looked back. That's where he started. After he acknowledged the truth of the situation, he didn't ignore it. He looked back. He looked back to worship, to the sanctuary, to God's power, glory, and love. And then the rest of the psalm, he looks forward. Look back at verses 3 to the end. Because your steadfast love is better than life, I, my lips, will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate, you on, the, meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the presence of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. My right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. When you look at all these, the verb tenses, the, um, is this happening now? Is it happening in the past? Is it happening in the future? This whole section When you look at the verb tenses, it doesn't simply talk about what he will do sometime in the distant future, like a simple prediction. Someday, someday that will happen. The sense that you get as you look at these verb tenses is that he's going to start now, and this is going to continue on into the future. As he contemplates both the immediate future, this first step of faith, as well as the future steps many days hence, he proclaims that he intends to do now what he has every hope he will keep doing on into the future when it'll finally be consummated. The hope of what he will be doing and his ability to even start it now is based in what he has just reflected on and declared. 
He has seen God's power, God's glory, and God's love. That's what gives him the motivation. That's what gives him the hope. That's what gives him the ability to take that first step and to go, I'm going to start, and it's going to continue. The will do is a declaration. Listen to this. The will do, I will, I will, I will, I will, is a declaration of commitment as well as a declaration of hope. A declaration of commitment regarding what is starting now in spite of his feelings and in spite of his circumstances and a declaration of hope in what he has good reason to believe will be the case down the road because of what he knows of the covenant God who sovereignly orders history and loves him in mercy and grace. And so what will he do? I'm going to list these verbs off for you. Listen to this. What role... Do these verbs, these actions, play in your life? He will praise. He will bless. He will lift his hands. He will be fully satisfied. He will praise with joyful lips. He will remember while he's on his bed. He will meditate when he can't sleep. He will sing. He will cling. He will rejoice. Notice again what he is hoping will be restored. What has he lost? He's lost his family, he's lost his kingdom. Where's that in the psalm? It is not central. Neither his family nor his kingdom are central to this psalm. They are the context, certainly, that's on his mind. But what is he, what is he longing for? What does he look back to? The heart of his concern and what he is hoping to be restored and what he is going to pursue, even in the wilderness, is worship. He is going to praise. He is going to physically manifest that by lifting up his hands. He is going to praise. He is not going to do these things like God's blessing is somehow received by operating some machinery, some spiritual machinery. No, pull these levers and say these words and then God will just respond. No, he's not acting as if there's just spiritual levers to pull and then God will just spit out blessing and respond. He's also not expecting that when he is restored to his position that he will live like a slave. I mean, he is messed up again. What does he deserve? Nothing. What does he deserve? Hell. What does he deserve? Punishment. What does he deserve? Everything he's getting. But he is not responding, expecting that, yeah, yeah, God will will bring him back. Yeah, you sit down at at the end of the table now. Get what you deserve. Yeah, you can come back. But you're not coming back to the head of the table. No, that's, that isn't what he's expecting. Listen to verse 5. What is he expecting? What is he expecting? Because he has come to know the God who he's calling upon because of the years of consistent liturgy of life, of coming into the temple and the sanctuary and experiencing God's power and his glory and his love. Verse 5, my soul will there's the, there's the commitment and the expectation. My soul will be satisfied. How? As with fat and rich food. He expects to be restored fully. 
Not because he deserves it, but because he knows who God is. And this is not the the cry of somebody who doesn't understand his sin. It's a cry of somebody who understands God's kindness, his mercy, his gentleness, his grace, his patience, his long-suffering. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. My mouth will praise you with joyful lips. He is going to feast on God. The lack will be met. The hunger will be satisfied. The thirst will be quenched. Like David, we experience trials. There will be times in which we feel both physically and spiritually destitute, homeless, look around to grasp onto something and there's not food, there's not shelter. We're spinning. What's up? What's down? And so we see David's response. He recognized but did not dwell on the trial. He used the pain and the sadness as a prod to remember worship and to respond with worship. He didn't just think happy thoughts. He didn't just think about God in general. He focused on particular kinds of thoughts. God's sovereignty. God's weightiness. God's amazing love. He thought back to his experience in worship and desired to see that worship restored. David allowed the present and pressing issues to point him toward what ultimately mattered. Thirst for water became thirst for God. Hunger for food became hunger for God's special presence. His lack of a home reminded him of the only home that for him really mattered, the one where God dwelt. So as you reflect on your own life, what parts of this psalm sound familiar? Just the first two verses of lament. I'm thirsty, I'm, I'm broken, I'm, I'm lost, I don't know what to do period. And it's just this broken record, this recycling of that idea over and over again. Are you afraid that the only thing that God offers in terms of restoration is some sort of kind of disembodied bribe? Yeah, yeah, you'll, you'll, you'll be happy again one day in some sort of intangible way. A bribe, you know, isn't, you feel like it's just what God offers is just not really going to satisfy me. Does your view of God the Father prevent you from seeing that his gifts are genuinely good? That they are designed for people like us? People with souls, people with bodies? We have, a, we have to thirst for something. You are going to thirst for something. We were designed to be drinking creatures. If you are not thirsting for God, then what are you thirsting for? If it's not God, then it's some false God that you've been thirsting for. And you will find, I promise you, without fail, that whatever it is, it will fail. God is a wellspring. God is a wellspring of living water. Everything else looks, looked to as a proxy for God will turn out to be a broken and muddy cistern. A pit in which rainwater has kind of ended up muddy, gross, 
algae-ridden. You have two choices. That's it. You can turn to God, who is the wellspring of living water, a, a spring that with clear, fresh-flowing water, or you can go and you can dig your little hole, or you can find one dug by somebody else, and you can try to drink from that. But if you want to respond to the desert that you find yourself in well, then you must prepare prior to that desert experience. The good times are there for you to know God well when it's easier to see clearly. In the midst of the desert, both physical and emotional, the psalmist is able to endure because he can draw upon what he's come to see and known prior to that wilderness. We need to, therefore, take the times of clear skies and easy joy to fill our minds and hearts and to condition our spiritual reflexes so that when we have something to draw upon, when truths are hard to see, you can't fight with weapons you don't have. You can't enter into battle and then look around, oh, where's my weaponry? You can't draw from wells that are empty. You can't return to a place from which you've never been. So take the times when you have the temporal and the mental and the emotional capacity to fill up. Don't wait until you need to draw upon the arsenal of God's word to get familiar with the weaponry. If you haven't been wielding God's word in training, then you won't know what to do with that weaponry when you need to pick it up and swing it for real. And when you enter the desert, you can have confidence that the experience will not be wasted. The wilderness is not simply something to pass through and just endure. If I just, grin, if I just grin and grit my teeth and I just get through it, no. God uses the wilderness journeys to prove the quality of what he has given and the truth of what he has said. Notice, where are you in that? Let me repeat that. God uses the wilderness journeys to prove the quality of what he has given and the truth of what he has said. You're there. You're important. But oftentimes when we find ourselves in these difficult situations, we, we forget that it's ultimately God who's there, who's going to get the glory out of this. And we think, well, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Well, we've seen praise and, and lifting up hands and so forth. But, but ultimately, why, why would God bring us through these trials and challenges to prove what he has given, and the truth of what he has said. We are refined and made malleable by the heat of affliction, precisely so that we do not remain standing still. Children, you ever been to the beach? Not this time of year, but on a hot day, a summer day, and you're standing in the sand? This is not a 72, you know, perfect ambient temperature that Carl, we're t- we're, you know, it's 85 degrees on the beach in Southern California, and the sand is hot. And what do you want to do? Run to get off the sand. God heats up our life to get us moving. Otherwise, we would just stand still. The psalmist looks during his time of trial at the God who has promised, and in that moment, he finds that God can be trusted again. This is not the first time. So are you taking the time to feed on God's word? They really are life. 
you find that the only hope we have is in the food that Jesus gives generously. So in the good times, are you hiding God's word in your heart? Familiarizing yourself with the story, the gospel story, the beautiful story, the amazing story of which, as God's redeemed people, you're a part. Are you sharing God's faithfulness when it's easy to see in the easy times? Are you initiating conversations with other Christians that draw your heart closer to God and to one another? Is your prayer life rich and growing richer? Are you learning to be eager for worship? Are you learning to sing songs? Are you seeking out Christian fellowship and then fellowshipping like Christians? A lot of times, you know, we fellowship and then we, we forget. Wait, this is, like, we should be thoughtful about how we're doing this. In the wilderness times, are you guarding your heart against bitterness and self-pity? The psalmist acknowledged his condition. He did not shirk back from that, but he didn't end there. He wasn't in that broken cycle. In your wilderness, are you remembering that the truths that you knew only moments before, before that phone call came in and suddenly your world fell apart? That those truths are true now, as true now as they were two seconds ago. In your wilderness, are you reminding yourself that truth doesn't hinge upon the feelings that you're having or your circumstances? Truth doesn't change. Are you placing your hope as ridiculous and impossible as it may feel in the moment in the promises of God? Are you stubbornly seeking to worship both in the privacy of your own prayer closet and in the public gathering of God's people? In the trial, is that what you're doing? To the extent that we see these things being lived out in our lives, we can be thankful to God for giving us the ability to do it. And if today you feel the weight of your circumstances and the inability to respond in this way of faith, God's grace and mercy extended to David 3,000 years ago, they're available to you today. God is indeed most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And David looked to find his satisfaction in that God. And God was glorified. And we're hearing about it again. 3,000 years later, God gets the glory because David responded to his pain and difficulty in this way of faith. Let's make that true of us. Let's become people who look back to the worship of God, to his sanctuary. In the good times, in the easy times, in the times where joy, it just seems like it's right there. And in the times when you feel thirsty and hungry and lost and disconnected and dark. Let's pray. Father, you know our needs better than we do. And you've heard these words where they have applicability in the lives of those who are seated here today. Would you please make them effectual? Satisfy the thirst and the hunger and the longing in our hearts. We thank you for those times of joy. We thank you for those times when the the sun is is so easy to see the sun shining, the clouds 
the clouds are barely there. It's all just sunshine. Help us to be thankful in those moments and prepare us for the difficult times. And help us to remember that the sun still shines. Your sun, the Lord Jesus, still shines. His face still shines. His face shines with the, the effects of the resurrection the glory of his promises, and so we thank you for him. Help us to remember him. Help us to remember him even now as we sit down to sup with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.